Well, we're going to continue with the life of Christ. And again, as you recall, uh, on Palm Sunday, we got to the triumphal entry and looking at the sequence of Christ's life. And now we're doing a retrospective going back and looking at some of his teachings, his parables, those sorts of things before we take him through the Passion Week. Uh, so today we're going to be in Matthew chapter 18, uh, another uh, famous passage perhaps. Matthew 18, uh, in a series of uh, parables, Jesus talking about, uh, be careful that you don't cause one of my little disciples to stumble. Uh, and then he, he says, but you know, he gives the parable of the, the, the shepherd going after the one sheep, leaving the 99, going after the one because he doesn't want to lose the one. Um, and it's on the heels of that that we have the passage we're going to look at today, beginning at verse 15 through verses 35. This is after uh, Peter's confession. This is after the transfiguration, uh, just to put it in context of where we were in the life of Christ. And the first section, uh, you'll notice the outline. I've, I've entitled it uh, Friendship and Family. Most people would uh, title this section, you know, Church Discipline. And it is, there is, about, there is church discipline here, but the motivation behind all of this is to reclaim the lost sheep, uh, because the lost sheep you want to reclaim as a friend and as part of your family. He talks about a brother in Christ, so we're all one family. So the point is not to go after this person, you know, to get our pound of flesh, which is often how we approach these things. This is about restoration, to restore the family and friendship. So that's why I've done that. And then uh, on the heels of that, uh, Peter's going to ask about forgiveness. And again, thank, thank God for Peter and his impetuosity and how he, what he says, because we get some of the greatest teachings because Peter asked the questions. Uh, so on this, and this is a famous passage on forgiveness. So right on the heels, of course, of what we would call church discipline, we're talking about forgiveness. The whole thing is about kingdom ethic. What is the kingdom like? Jesus is saying this is what the kingdom is like. And the kingdom is about restoration and forgiveness. We have to keep that in mind as we approach these passages. So if you look in verse 14, uh, I mean verse 13, if it turns out that he finds it, meaning the shepherd, I, I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 which have not gone astray. Thus it is the will of your Father who is in heaven that not one of these little ones perish. Well then, pretty much what he's going to say now is how do you go after that one? How do you go after the one who's gone astray? That is the impetus behind him now talking about what we would call church discipline. It's probably familiar to most of us. Uh, our school, we operate under this principle uh, in our in our school handbook it says on on solving conflicts it's this is how you operate this is what we do even though we're not a church but we're part of the discipling arm of the church so with that in mind let's hear what he has to say in verses 15 through 20 of chapter 18 you ready Jay yes I'm ready all right here we go chapter 15 Matthew 18 chapter 18 verse 15 if your brother or sister sins Go and point out their fault, just because the two of you, if they listen to you, you have won them over. But if they, if they do not listen, take one or two others along so that, they, that every matter can be established by the 
testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell us to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a lousy tax collector. <laughs> Truly I tell you, whatever you bind, and each will be bound in heaven, and whatever you lose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, truly I tell you that if, <clears throat> if two of you on earth agree about everything they ask for, they will be done for thereby Father in heaven. For there two or three gather in my name, there am I with them. Awesome. Thank you, sir. Lousy tax collector. Again, we get Jay's commentary along, along with it. Yes. All right. They were real jerks, crooks. Real jerks. All right. So we hear it that if your brother sins, so and some of you, some translations will have sins against you. This is one of those. Uh, those manuscript transmission things where some of the older, uh, older manuscripts don't have against you. And some do. But it, uh, so some of you may have a note in your Bible. Either way, though, it holds. It seems, uh, because Peter asks later, well, if, if someone sins against me, how many times? So it seems like the, the, the idea is that you know someone has wronged you. But either way, the, the principle remains. And uh, by the way, the, the, the Essenes operated this way, that, that community in Qumran that produced the Dead Sea Scrolls. This is, this is not like some unique thing. It's just common sense in a body and in a family aiming towards restoration. It seems like this would be the natural progression about how you want to do this. And again, the aim is always towards restoration. Paul writes in 2 Thessalonians 3, uh, when he's writing his letter, he says, look, if, if there's someone who doesn't heed these words, don't associate with them so that you're put to shame, I mean, so that we put them to shame. But don't regard them as your enemy. Admonish them as a brother. So it's, it's these, behind this is not, again, to get your pound of flesh. This is towards restoration. This is harder than probably going to ask for forgiveness. Often, you know, that's, that's one thing, to humble ourselves, to go to someone and ask for forgiveness. It's another deal to go to someone because they have wronged you or if they have sinned, and this is again in the church, these are brothers, brothers and sisters in Christ, to go to them. That's a daunting thing. And it should be because we all recognize our own sinfulness, how we have wronged others. But again, this is a body, and we can't allow sin to go unchecked. So the point is not just to bring back the brother. It's also to, to make sure the body is healthy. But make no mistake about it. It is scary stuff to do. So chances are you have to earn the right to do this, right? Hopefully this is someone you know, and you're, you know, you're willing to do it. So, just like any friends. So he says, go face to face, friend to friend. Don't do this via email. <laughs> Don't text this. Now, of course, that wasn't around then, but even letters, you just, you just miss nuances, right? So, this is face to face stuff, so that there's no mistake. 
And if it's two brothers coming together and if there is agreement, Christ is with us. Notice he said that at the very end of the passage. So we have to be careful. So you go in private to reprove this person. And it, he's, notice Jesus says, and if he listens, you've won your brother. That's the point. I would suggest if it doesn't work the first time, try it again. You don't have to go immediately to the next step. You can try again. Um, this is just a natural progression of how this is supposed to work. And again, if it's not with the motivation of restoration, if it's just with the motivation of, well, I'll show you, then you're just as wrong in doing this. So let's say the person doesn't uh, respond, doesn't repent. Now Jesus, using an Old Testament principle from Leviticus, you take along others so that what is said in this meeting can be corroborated. It's not to gang up. It's much more of making sure that there is corroboration of what's happening in this meeting. You've got to be careful who you choose, too. Got, who are you going to take with you? And it has to be people as well who are probably a little hesitant. Not someone who goes, oh yeah, I'll go. That's usually probably a bad sign. Who are a little bit hesitant in, in themselves, humble, and recognize this is for this person's restoration. So you go in that manner. And let's say that doesn't work. Maybe after several tries. Now you bring it before the assembly. Notice Jesus, we, we translate the word church here. Well, there was no church per se as if churches existed at this time. There were assemblies in Ecclesia, those who had been called out for a common purpose. It wasn't unusual in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, to use this term for an assembled body of the Jews as well. So you go to the assembly, and today for us that would be at a church, or in the, uh, the case of where I'm working, a school, but under the banner of Christ, you go to the whatever assemblage that is, and there we bring it up. And that's got to be careful, too. You've got to be very careful about how we do that. All that being said, the point is, notice it ramps up each time with those who are involved. And hopefully it ramps up each time with those who are praying for and want to see the repentance and restoration of this person. Again, not to hold someone up to ridicule. That's not the point. But lest we think this is not important or that this is nothing, you know, this is just, yeah, well, we can just ignore this. Notice how important Jesus says this is. He says there's some, a binding nature to this. Now, if they don't repent, he says treat them like a Gentile or a tax gatherer or a tax collector. And most would understand this as we exclude them from the fellowship. So Jews would have understand that as they're outside of the fellowship of God's people. And we exclude them for a time, hopefully, until they come to repentance. We see this. Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 talks about the person in unrepentant sin saying you've got to shun them. For, that, for the purpose of bringing them back and to preserve the body if they're unrepentant in this. And if in 2 Corinthians, uh, chapter, I think chapter 2, Paul talks about someone that was hurt but has since been restored. So we actually have an example of that in the church at Corinth 
with Paul having them do this very thing. And the whole point, of course, is towards restoration. Even in Leviticus, we're told, in a dispute with your neighbor, don't do this in anger. You do this to restore. So I, I notice I'm, I'm really harping on the motivation behind this. Sometimes it can be towards, we just got to get rid of this person. And sometimes, you know, there's someone you may need to get rid of, but if that's your motivation and not restoration, you're doing it wrong. Yes, sir, Tom. Excellent. Yeah, that's the verse I'm, to which I'm re referring. Very good. You must have study notes. Good man. All right. Not all Bibles are created equal. All right. Or should that be equally? Anyway. Uh, all right. Well, some would say, though, it's not about shunning. Some say what this means, what Jesus is saying, is go back to the drawing board. In other words, start all over. Treat them like a Gentile or a tax collector who are not part of the fellowship, so start all over. Start with the gospel. Because they, they, they're nervous about Jesus saying this about Gentiles and tax collectors, because Jesus has been with Gentiles and tax collectors and saying that's who he came for. He's, he's trying to gather these people. So some commentators are a little bit nervous about, about this. There are some who would say that this is not even the words of Jesus. This is something added later. But I don't think we need to, to go that far. I think we see... If we recall the, the, the real push of this, restoration of the lost sheep. I think, I think this makes sense. And but notice the nature of the bindingness of this. Truly I say to you, meaning, that's his way of saying, now listen to this carefully. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. He already said that to Peter, right? He would already said that to Peter. At Peter's confession, now he says it to the disciples themselves, and, the, the, and by extension, the gathering, the fellowship, the church. In other words, don't take this lightly. That binding and loosing, if you recall, is permitting, meaning, meaning forbidding and permitting in rabbinic language. What you forbid, what you permit. Jesus takes it a step further after the resurrection. In John 20, after the resurrection, after he breathes upon them, the disciples, he says, if you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. So we need to recognize that God doesn't take this lightly, and neither should we. That, you know, the church is not just some sort of hiccup in, in the history of salvation history. This is Christ's body on earth, and it's, what we do has import, has impact, and we forget that sometimes. Paul says uh, in Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, If anyone's caught in sin, in sin, restore him, but with gentleness. But be careful, lest you're tempted as well. So all of this is tempered into one little ball here for us. And then he continues, and he says, Again, I say, if two... If two of you agree on earth about anything that they may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. Now, either that's a lie, let's go ahead and say it, or 
we have to have a way of interpreting this to where it's not. I don't know about you, but we've had prayers united together in here for the health and restoration and healing of people that did not come to pass. Does that make sense? Let's just be honest. It hasn't happened. I think there is something here that will help us to understand what he's really trying to say. That word for anything, uh, that, word, that word for thing there, is actually a very specific term for judicial matters. Pragmaton, where we get pragmatic. It's, it's actually a word for judicial matters. If, you, if two of you come together and agree on these types of judicial matters, know that that is the will of my Father in heaven. What you're doing is being done. I don't think it's a cart, you know, blanket statement about any of it. In fact, I, 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 I can tell you from experience it can't be. And lest we think that our gathering together is just casual. Notice he says, for where two or three have gathered in my name, I'm in your midst. Now that's not a conjuring trick, okay? It's not like, oh, we've got to have two together and then Jesus will appear. He's merely stating the truth of the fact that when you gather, I am with you. Remember that. We can take that as a reassurance, but also as a caution. When we're together and we're making these sorts of decisions, don't do it in a haphazard or cavalier manner. Jesus is in our midst. We have to constantly seek his will about these things. We have to be careful. We have to be compassionate. We have to be wise. So that's why a lot of churches just choose not to do anything about it. We know of sin in our midst and we just go, and I get it, right? Part of it's because who wants to stir that pot? But if we take seriously being the body of Christ, sometimes that pot has to be stirred. And we have to have wise individuals who can do these very things. That last verse actually is, Jesus. if, if people knew the rabbis or the, the, the Pharisees in the midst, this would have been scandalous to them as well, by the way. They would have heard, because they, had a, they already knew that they knew where two men gather around Torah to discuss Torah. The glory of God is between them. Meaning the Shekinah, the glory, that, that glory of God, is between them. And here Jesus is saying, where you two come together doing these things, I will be in your midst. I, whoa. That would have, that would have resonated very scandalously with them. So there's some deep Christology here about the nature of who Jesus is as well. Well, given that, that headiness of this, Peter shows he's been paying attention, right? <laughs> he's, he's okay. Well then, how often? I wonder, I wonder how often we do this. Because, you know, Peter wants to know. And because of that, we ha now have a parable that is recorded only in Matthew's Gospel. A lot of the parables are in a lot of the different Gospels. This one is only in Matthew. And Jesus helps him to understand, and this is our second point in our outline, the nature of forgiveness. Remember, we're family, we're friendship, we're about restoration. That can only happen with forgiveness. And thus we have this very poignant parable 
beginning in verse 21. You're going to read for us? You're up front, so you have to. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you not seven times, but seventy-seven times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. At this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. But when the servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, Be patient with me and I will pay it back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. That last verse, she calls us a little bit of pause. This is how my heavenly Father will treat you. Wow. So we need to make sure we wrap our minds and our hearts around what's being asked and said about this. The parable itself is fairly easy to understand. The only thing we miss is the hyperbole, meaning the severe overstatement that Jesus really uses in this parable that his audience would have snickered at. We'll, we'll, we'll miss, I'll, I'll help you to see that. But they, there would have been a comic element to some of this as well that we just, we miss a little bit of. But first, let's go to Peter and his question. So how many? Now notice he's treating forgiveness like a commodity. He's almost being a Pharisee. Like forgiveness is a thing I have that in my, my change belt here, and I've got so many. Remember those things? Yeah. Yeah. Students, it's, a, it's, a, it's like a miracle, you know, today. The, 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 you see that what's this person from the future, they take change out of this thing on their belt. It's, yeah. Uh, so, well, first they do change. What's that? Yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. Um, but anyway, all that to say. Can you manage only, only 10,000 big bags of gold. Yeah, we're going to get to how much that is in just a moment. Yeah, good job. Yeah. Well, so like a Pharisee, showing he understands what the Pharisees know about forgiveness as a commodity, the Pharisees had developed an understanding from Amos, where Amos says, if you remember when we studied Amos, it's, of course you do, it's only a few years ago, but when we studied Amos, um, we're... we're where God says, for, for three sins, and he names the nation, and for four I will. So that idea of for three sins, they took to say, well, all right, God's forgiving three times that these nations have repented, but not the fourth. And by extension, we can't be more forgiving and gracious than God, so we must forgive three times if someone comes to us and repents. But the fourth, no, that's out. So only three, not four. Yes? You remember when Abraham was uh, bargaining with God about saving uh, Sodom and Gomorrah? And he starts out with, 
20 people in New York. Now, if one, if one <coughs> righteous person is found, well, you say, oh, yeah. And so, uh, there's a lot of arguments. Yeah, and the, the extension of God's largesse in that. Well, Peter probably is seeking sort of a, uh, you know, a little, oh, a little pat on the, on the head from Jesus. Because he takes what the rabbi says, doubles it, adds one. And then that number of completeness, seven, right? Which is, has a lot of resonance as well in Scripture, in the history of Israel. So he's kind of pushed it. He's probably thinking, how many? Like seven, right? I mean, come on. I, I. And Jesus, of course, is going to divest him of this understanding that this is something that you are to dole out as if you have a purse to give it. It's not that. So he replies with either 70 times 7 or 77. It's okay either way. Uh, if it's 77, it probably harkens back to Genesis, where, where we have this war song of Lamech saying that, you know, Cain was avenged sevenfold, I'm going to be avenged 77-fold. Like, ah. So this ancient world's understanding of this limitless power for vengeance. And now we see it twisted for limitless forgiveness. But either way, the number itself is not important. What he's doing with the number is saying, it's not a number. It is a state of mind. It's the position from which we operate, and it does not end. You can't exhaust it, is what he's saying. So he tells a parable to help us understand that inexhaustibility of God's forgiveness and how we in turn should extend that to others. So, he gives, the, he gives this parable of a king who's calling accounts to bear. Chances are these slaves he's calling are not, you know, household slaves. Chances are it's probably, he's got in mind, you know, satraps sort of, you know, governors who are working for him collecting taxes, those kinds of things, because the numbers are so outrageous. And notice it says he owed him 10,000 talents. Now, the talent was the highest currency denomination in the Roman Empire. And it wasn't a coin or anything. It was just a way of referring to a lot of stuff. About 10,000 denarii. A denarius was one day's wage. So 10,000 days wages. And ten, the, he uses the term 10,000, which is the highest Greek word, the Greek word for the highest number that uh, the Greeks have to actually delineate a number. And it's where we get our word myriad. It's the myrion. So he's just, he's just pushing the limit. Jesus is just, you know, going, he's just going all out. Just to give you an idea, we don't even have to translate it into American dollars, okay? Let's not do that. The province in which he is preaching at the time, scholars speculate that the annual revenue of that province to Rome was 600 talents. Does that make sense? So when people heard this, they would have, they would have done that. I mean, it's like, come on. I mean, it wouldn't have been a number. It would have just been, that's impossible. You know, I mean, so they would have giggled a little bit. He owes 10,000, and that's when it would have been funnier when he, he begs, look, I'll repay it. <laughs> Everybody knows he can't repay it, okay? That's not going to happen, and that's the point of the story at this point. We're not trying to figure out, oh, isn't that nice that the king let him off to repay his debt? And, well, he didn't. He just forgave it because you can't pay it back. 
It's so huge. And that's what they would have heard. That's what we need to hear. That's us, by the way. The debt we've been forgiven. It's been paid. Jesus paid the debt. But we've been let off. The enormity of, for which we need to be forgiven, our sinfulness, not just our acts, but our sin nature, it's just we can't repay it. The tendrils of our sin go way beyond ourselves as well. There are other people paying for our sins that we don't even know about. It's trickled everywhere. Some of you in this room are maybe paying for sins of those who've come before you in the sense that the, the, the ramifications and consequences have trickled down. We can't go back and gather it all up. There's just no way. It's impossible. So we fall at the feet of our master and he forgives us the debt. Let that be a reminder to all of us again. Well, what if it ended there? Yay! But now he goes, here's the rest of the story. So this very same man, having received this amazing gift of graciousness and mercy, finds one of his fellow, fellow servants and ends up choking him. I mean, look at the contrast. Choking him for, you know, what he owes. And what does he owe? He owes... Where was it? Hundred or, or denarii, hundred days wage, hundred days wage, which is not insignificant, but it's compared to the other people would have been. Come on, he can pay that back. He's got that. He can repay it. Right or one like billion. Yeah, that's crazy. Well, what we see is that this person who's been forgiven, it's not touched his heart. There's, there's nothing there that he's been touched by. It's like he's found a loophole. I'm off. Now, where's my money? You owe me. And he casts him, he does cast his fellow servant into jail to repay it. Meaning his family's going to have to work to do it. He can be forced into hard labor. All those things to repay that debt. And there would have been humor in that for them too. Because they would have seen the, the small number. The original audience would have heard this small number. And the comedy of seeing him go out and immediately start choking a guy for that little amount. When I talk to the kids about it, I, I compare it to, you know, a billion dollars versus a Snicker bar. Just so they understand. You owe me a Snickers bar. Well, I'll, I'll get it to you. No! You know, it's that level of disparity. Well, given that, we see now his other... other the other slaves see it, they go back and tell the master, and of course we see what's going to happen here. It's not like we couldn't predict what's going to happen, and that, he says, I can't believe this. I do this for you, and then you go and choke someone over a Snickers bar? Where, where is that? Where'd that come from? And notice now the judgment. He is put in, and here's a word used only here in the New Testament, it's not jailer, it's torturer. So, that was a Roman practice, not a Jewish practice, but torturer. So, we know by implication, there's, he's not coming out. There is no paying that debt. And then the words we get at the end that need to resonate with us and help us to understand. So, my heavenly Father also will do to each of you who doesn't forgive his brother from your heart. 
Now, that doesn't mean that, G, that God is paying out forgiveness as a commodity. I think the best way to think of it is this is just how the universe operates. It's like breathing. For you to take in your next breath, you must exhale a breath. And that's how it works. And for us, in forgiveness, that taking in of Christ's forgiveness it must then be followed by the exhalation of forgiveness to others so we can take in more forgiveness. It's just how it works. Jesus said so much in the Sermon on the Mount when he gave us the Lord's Prayer. We sang it this morning when he gave us the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors in the same way we forgive. Not as we go along forgiving. We're asking God to forgive us just like we forgive other people. And it's so important at the end of the prayer, he adds, and it's in Matthew 6, at the end of it he says, because if you forgive men their offenses, so will your heavenly Father forgive you. But if you don't, neither will your Father forgive you. It's not a deal we're making. It is a reality of forgiveness. People who are forgiven, who understand the depth of that forgiveness, forgive. Now that doesn't mean we make excuses. The implication here is repentance, right? That someone has come to you in repentance. That's the implication. And it's not that we make excuses. That's not what forgiveness is. If, if there's an excuse, forgiveness isn't needed. It's because there is no excuse that forgiveness must be offered. And we are this debtor who's been forgiven. See the chime of confirmation right there. Have been, we are the ones who've been forgiven this, this outrageous debt. We must extend that to each other. Be very careful when you say something cliched like, well, I'll never forgive you. You're putting yourself on dangerous ground. More than that, I think it reveals you don't understand the depth of a forgiveness that's been offered to you. This is how families work. Unfortunately, how many of us have people in our families who haven't spoken to each other in X number of years because of one thing that happened in the past, or it could have been a pattern of things, but no one is willing to forgive. And it's like that dark elephant in the room when everyone gets together. And then, of course, once someone passes, they die. And there's people left with, if only, if only I had. It's so funny that that's how families operate, where there can be this, this this cancer of unforgiveness when the, we're told that the family is the one place where there should be, especially the family of God. It's also interesting to note that often, we, how often we don't follow Jesus' advice on how to deal with these things. How often do we find out that everybody else knows about something <laughs> before anyone's come to you? It's because we love gossip. Because we're not thinking of restoration. 
We're not thinking of going to a brother in order to restore them. We enjoy dragging them through the mud. We enjoy that. That alone should tell us how horrible we are. That alone should let us know how much we need God's forgiveness. That we find that as good as a tasty meal. That's, there's a lot going on here, right? So, yes, sir. The question was, what if someone says, I forgive you, but I will not forget? Um, depends on the motivation. Does that make sense? In other words, it could, you could say it in this way. I forgive you, but it's going to take a while for me to learn to trust you again. Meaning, it's going to take a while for me to forget what's happened. But, I, but I'm not going to hold it against you. And I'm going to work on trying to, um, to build this trust. I mean, that's just normal human nature. If it's meant that way, I don't think there's a problem. If, however, it could be meant almost as just a loophole. Okay, God says forgive. Okay, I forgive you, but I am not going to forget. It's just you haven't forgiven. So it depends on the motivation, I think, as to how it's said. M- most of the time people say, I forgive you, but I'm not going to forget as almost a, a double whammy. Um, so really, I think it depends on that. Is this easy, guys? Of course not. This is not easy. But I'll give you the hint, or at least, I would say secret, but we're not Gnostics here. I would give you like at least the groundwork from which to make this easier. Always keep your own sinfulness and what you've been forgiven to the forefront before you look at someone else's. Take care of the beam in your own eye before you go for the speck in your brother's eye. That should be in the Bible somewhere. Yeah, man, that should be there somewhere. Yeah, Jay probably put it in there. That's probably where it came from.